Morning, you guys. It's great to see you. Fun worship this morning. Got a drummer back in the house. That's kind of fun. Jeremy, good to have you here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Why don't we go ahead and stand together. We're going to go ahead and uh, read together verses 9 through 21 of our text. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the word of the Lord today, amen? Let's have a seat. This is, uh, we've been taking a little more time going through 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, the last time we were together on a Sunday morning in 2 Corinthians 5, we studied the first five to, or, or eight verses rather, um, that we can have assurance and confidence that God has a plan for us regarding our heavenly habitation. You know, that if we die now, and the rapture of the church doesn't happen for another, you know, whatever, 10 days to a thousand years or whatever that might be, that we don't need to worry about where our spirit is going to go. God has a building for us, an eternal building, something that he's been creating for us to dwell in, in that interim period. Uh, and so kind of this idea of uh, verse eight, that to be absent from the bodies, to be present from the Lord, that's something that we are well pleased with. Um, that's a wonderful thing. It's an encouraging thing. Every Christian ought to love 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, because it encourages us 
on in the times of death and the passing of loved ones. Um, but even that text has implications that go far beyond just us being happy that we have somewhere to go when we die. Um, there's, there's radical implications that trickle down and we find it um, exposed in our text today, verses 18 through 21. And so two weeks ago, I titled the passage, the message, Absent from the Body, Present with the Lord, and that the implications. Okay, now Wednesday night, we tackled the middle part of this chapter, and we saw something else that happens kind of in the, uh, in the afterlife when we pass away, and that is that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we find that in uh, these, these uh, following verses, verses 9 uh, through 11 there. And so uh, Wednesday night's message this week was titled, The Judgment Seat of Christ and Its Implications. And there's implications that come from knowing that we're going to stand before the Lord and have a judgment one day, and that also our friends and family who don't know Jesus, they're going to have a different type of standing before the Lord and a different type of judgment. Either way, both of those judgments have implications, and we get to that in our text, verses 18 through 21 uh, today. Uh, Now, just a quick kind of recap Um, verse 9 says, knowing that we have eternity, knowing that we look beyond what's temporary here and we have a hope of eternity, um, all that Paul had been saying that to be absent from the body and to be, is to be present with the Lord. He says in verse 9, therefore we make it our aim. And so we aim, we have a goal as Christians, whether we're Uh, Here or there, whether we're here on earth or there in heaven, uh, we want to be well-pleasing to him. We have ambition to be pleasing to the Lord in our lifestyle because we are going to see him face to face one day. Uh, Verse 10, we must. Uh, Something that drives our pleasing lifestyles before the Lord is that there's a sobering reality that every one of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I say that one more time for you who are Christians. This is really who it's speaking to right here. We must, every one of us Christians, appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. Now, I'd encourage you to get online or download our podcast and listen to Wednesday night's teaching because we did an in-depth study on that. And there's wonderful comfort in knowing that the judgment seat of Christ is actually not a judgment where our eternity is decided, whether we will go to heaven or go to hell, But this is a judgment that is for Christians that comes from the example of an Olympic-style judgment. In fact, the Bema seat judgment is what this is referred to. The judgment seat of Christ. In the Greek, it's Bema seat of Christ. And Paul is referring to a judgment seat that was in Corinth where there was an Olympic game that took place. And there was, a, there was a judge, and he would reward for 
performance, okay? Um, now, of course, that strikes a nerve for us who are saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast. Uh, and yet we see that the Lord is not unjust to forget the labors of love that we have poured out. He is a God who does reward. He is a God who does bless those who diligently seek him. And so this judgment isn't one that gives us the type of fear as, as if, oh no, we're going to be determined in heaven one day if we're going to heaven or hell. But rather this judgment is a judgment where the Lord looks at our works of our life and why we did those works. And there is a reward for them. Now, uh, so two things there. What did you do and why did you do it? And Hebrews tells us that all things are naked and open before the Lord to whom we must give account. So everything we did and why we did it. Now you might be uh, a diligent children's ministry servant here, and that's great, but why? Why? Or you might be faithfully here cleaning the church or faithfully leading a discipleship group or faithfully on the worship team. Or, you know, we could just add all kinds of ministry type things. But why? Is it for the glory of God and for the love and edification of others and to further his kingdom and to bring him praise and honor and, and you know, advance the name of Jesus? Or is it so that you can build up your own kingdom and have the pats on the back and maybe, you know, look prestigious and have attention drawn, whatever? You know, is it for your glory or the glory of God? And we see throughout the New Testament that, man, for those that are doing it with the pure motivation of honoring God and loving our brother, that, man, there are rewards, there are crowns. Now, all the rewards that are given to Christians, we don't, you know, stack those up and walk around and brag in heaven and check me out my bad self. No, the scriptures say that we then turn all of the reward and turn it back to the Lord and worship him and cast the crowns before his throne and say, no, all of this was just done because what, what could we do? We love you. You are worthy. And we worship him in return. First Corinthians chapter three gives a kind of a different description of what this Bema seat judgment looks like. And, and Paul uses the example of a construction worker who's building a building. And he says that the foundation of the building is Jesus Christ. No other foundation can anyone lay than that foundation, which is Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have our foundation. It's Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone. All right. He is the foundation, and, and if you're, I can hear pages turning, and that's awesome, and I'm just going to reference, but you can flip there, 1 Corinthians 3, 8 through 15. But Paul says, you know what? I've laid the foundation for you guys. The foundation is Jesus, and now you guys start building these houses. Okay, so every one of us, we're building a house upon the foundation of Jesus, and he says, but take heed how you build on this house. Now, you can build your house as the three little pigs did, you know, and you got one little piggy and he's building it out of straw, you know, and you got another little piggy, he's building it out of sticks, right? But when the day of test came, when the wolves came and they huffed, I guess it was one wolf. It's been a while since I've read that story, which is funny because I've got three kids. We read Bible stories at our house. Okay, anyways, <laughs> you know, and huffed and puffed and, you know, the day of trial determined on it if that house was built solidly, Right? And the same is true in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The day of judgment will determine how we built these houses. Now, did we build with, with solid, good building material? Or did we build with hay and, 
and paper products, you know, and things like that. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul says, man, build with gold and silver and precious stones so that when your building goes through the fire, it will be preserved in that day of judgment and it will last. But man, if we are doing things out of poor motivation for our own kingdom, for our own glory, for ourselves, selfish ambition and conceit, uh, then we see that that will be burnt up. Now, the good thing is, as it says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that you'll be saved still, Christian, go to heaven. Woo, that is good. That is good. But as through fire, it says, as if in a sense, you've been pulled out of fire. You've been rescued out of fire. You, you show up there and whoo boy, you know, you have no hair, you know, um, you singe your eyebrows off, you know, your clothes are like, you know, and uh, smelling like smoke in a sense, if you'll allow me to, you know, kind of use illustration. Okay. You know, we don't want to look like the shipwrecked sailor that made it up onto the beach, but you got seaweed, you know, all over and a clam on your, or a, you know, a crab on your ear, you know. Woo, I made it. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Man, by his grace, he's bringing us as a church through 2 Corinthians chapter 5 so that, man, we would be doing things for the Lord and we would be doing it for his purposes and for his glory. Now, that is the Bema Seat Judgment, an Olympic-style judgment. There's another judgment in the New Testament, which is not what this is referring to, and it's called the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, this is one that should and does strike fear into the hearts of people who are not walking right with the Lord and fear in the hearts of us who know people who aren't walking right with the Lord. The Great White Throne Judgment, it is the place where eternal destinies are decided let me read to you Revelation 20, 11. John, the revelator, says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire." This is one of the final passages in the New Testament, and it is very sobering. It takes place at the end of, really the end of the days of the earth, uh, after the millennial reign of Christ and before the great white throne judgment, or and, excuse me, before the, the, the new heaven and the new earth are revealed. It's a very sobering time where anyone who's never been found in the book of life is judged before this great white throne. Now, just as with the Bema seat, our lives are laid open and bare and we're judged according to the works that we've done, and yet it's a different type of judgment, more of that reward type judgment. Uh, in this case, in the great white throne judgment, we see that books are opened, okay? Uh, it's believed by scholars that the different books that are opened in this time of judgment, perhaps it's uh, a record of your life, you know, as you stand before God apart from Christ and you say, judge me according to my works. I think I'm a pretty good guy. 
Let me just open up the story of your life, every hidden thing you've ever done, every motive of your heart. Let me just read this story out. Oh, don't read it out loud. I mean, no reason for everyone to know. But and so it's believed that perhaps it's you know, the story of your life. And then next to it is the law of Moses, which is a tutor to us to show us that we are in need of a savior. The law of Moses is not just the Ten Commandments, which every one of us have broken, but another 360 commandments on top of that that I'm sure every one of us has broken. I mean, when was the last time you slaughtered a goat to cover your sins? So um, we've, you know... <laughs> We failed there as well. And so then your life story compared with the law of Moses, it's already seen that, oh, epic fail, epic fail. But then we're told another book that's open, and it's really the book that matters. I mean, Rory would be shown to have been an epic fail. But this other book, and it's the book that matters, the book of life is opened. And anyone whose name is not written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. You know, the book of Romans says that on that day, many people are going to be standing before God and blah, blah, blah. And look what I did. And I'm this, I was in the Boy Scouts and I helped an old lady across the street once. And I always opened the door for people and blah, blah, blah. Or I was even a, you know, a doctors without borders. And I did this with my life. And, and it's going to say, every mouth will be stopped and every man will be found a liar. That we're not inherently good individuals, but every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only hope that we have is that Jesus Christ has come and he lived a life that I never could have lived. He lived a life of perfection. He fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law, every punctuation point and period mark and everything. He fulfilled it living a perfect life, but then he died the death of a sinner. He lived the life I could never live, but he died the death that I should die. And the minute we turn to him and respond to that wonderful good news, surrendering to his plan of salvation, names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life this morning? That is what matters. But two judgments, judgments for Christians and judgments for for, uh, non-Christians alike, and both really strike a type of terror into us. A fear, and and on one hand, for a Christian, it's a healthy reverence. On the other hand, for those that are, uh, perhaps you're here today and your name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I hope it strikes uh, an agonizing torture in your heart that one day you'll stand before your Creator and be found with fault. I hope that makes you not sleep tonight so that you'll turn to Him. You'll turn to His free gift of salvation And Paul actually will go on in our next verse and say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, it moves us towards something. It moves us to do something. Let me tell you real quick uh, a quote from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's question and answer number 52. The question is, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? So this is church history, you know, things are written to help disciple us and to teach us the deep truths of the scriptures. And so as we are here in 2 Corinthians 5 and we're learning that he's going to come and he's going to judge the living and the dead, how does that comfort you? And the answer to this that would just as we were learning and growing would be that in all distress and persecution, 
with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. So there's comfort in studying the judgments of the Lord. In fact, as we as Christians even get a bit nervous, knowing that we fail, knowing that we struggle, knowing that Hebrews says all things will be naked and open before the Lord, before whom we must give an account. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> the beautiful thing about that Hebrews passage is it goes right on without missing a beat and begins discussing Jesus, our faithful high priest who lived the perfect life and stands in our place in heaven, and it says, cling fast to him. Because even as Christians, we know, messed up this week. We know we're going to give an account for that. And yet, just as the catechism answer says, we can have comfort in the judgment because we cling to the one who's already entered into judgment for us, Jesus Christ. There's comfort in that. But there's also a good healthy dose of reverence that's installed into our heart. Verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we do something. We do something. Now it's one thing to be like, oh man, we're going to go through a judgment one day and I'm clinging to Jesus and I'm going to be found spotless before the throne and there's going to be rewards and I'm going to casting crowns, my favorite worship band, you know, cast crowns before the Lord. Nobody, nobody listens to casting crowns here. I'm going to throw my crowns before the Lord and worship him. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with me. Because I could just, we could say amen today and I'll go home and have a barbecue and be like, yeah, we're going to be judged and Jesus is there for us. And man, we're just going to, he's going to give us rewards. And that's exciting. Heaven, 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 heaven. Some, it's been said some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And I think that that's maybe just a good word right now because it doesn't end with just heaven, heaven, heaven. It says, knowing that, and knowing that there's going to be a great white throne judgment for sinners, we do something. And what do we do? We persuade men. We persuade men. We convince men. We reason daily with men, just as Paul, whether he was out in the marketplace or in the synagogues, he would reason daily with men. It is said of Paul that he would reason with uh, wherever the people were. He would go and reason with people. And he would reason with kings in the latter part of the book of Acts. It says he would reason concerning sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Oh, God, give us a heart to reason with people because we know that they will be judged. We reason with Christians because we know they're going to be judged. And we want them to be able to give God as much glory as they can on that day. We don't want them coming in smelling like smoke, and we want to have something to give to cast back before the throne of God. But also we reason with our neighbors and our brothers and our friends who are perishing because we know the great white throne judgment awaits them. 
We persuade men. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. We are compelled by something and propelled by something. The word means it seizes us to where we've got to do something. What seizes us? It's not so much our love for him. It's his love for us. Christ's love compels us. And what about Christ's love? He goes on to say it. That if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Knowing that compels us to persuade men. Knowing that the gospel... The great exchange that we're going to see in verse 21. There was one who died for us. That we could live and not live for ourselves. Oh, someone died for me. Now I can get back to just living for myself and building up my fame and my fortune. No, we don't live for that anymore. We live for the one who died for us. That's the love that compels us and propels us. Verse 16, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. And I pray that prayer for us today. From now on, we don't see people with their flesh and bones and either good looking or ugly or smelling great or smelling bad or rich or poor or round or skinny. I don't see them according to that anymore. I see them according to an eternity. These people, these men and women and and youth, all of them, they're much more than their outer appearance. There is an eternity there. One that, that Christ found so valuable, it was worth shedding his sinless blood for. When we went to... Uh, Nepal, we went to some of the most pagan places in the world. We went to the Hindu holy place of the world at the mouth of the holy river in Kathmandu. And then we went across the town to the, one of the most holy Buddhist spots for Tibetan Buddhism there's ever been. And my heart was indifferent to them right away. I mean, it's disgusting. It's just dirty. It's filthy. It's, there's, it's empty. And I found myself slipping into a lack of care for them. Gro- like grossed out and ticked off at paganism. And I spoke that to our friend Jack over there. And Jack just said, Rory, you just got to remember that Jesus found them worthy to shed his blood for just as much as he found you worthy. Loved them just as much. Paid the price just as much. And that was just a word for me that just boop, took me out of that funk, you know, and was like, let's go preach the gospel to him then. No longer seeing people according to their flesh. And as you look in the scriptures, you see prophets and missionaries that are called to be bold to people, but they're scared of them. And it says, don't be afraid of their faces. Don't be afraid of their faces. And I'm the kind of guy that, man, when it comes to persuading men, I'm like, okay, what's the reaction I'm getting? You know, am I getting a, or am I getting a, oh, really? Tell me more. Ooh, I'll lo- I love to talk to the people that are the tell me more people. But the, it's like, oh. Don't regard them according to that. 
Look at their eternal state. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All of these, this is review. This is all from Wednesday night, really. But felt it was a word for our Sunday morning crowd as well. Therefore, knowing that Christ died for us so that we could live for him, knowing that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone, anyone who would come to Christ today as he's calling you, he will make your life new. He will make your life squeaky clean. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone believes, out of his heart will flow living water. Whoever drinks in another place, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of living water springing up into everlasting life. For God so loved the world that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Today, if you come into this place, you're a whosoever. You're an anyone. Will you believe in him? Will you rest in him? Will you trust in him? Will you say, I believe the words that are being preached out of this man's mouth today. And though I don't get everything, there's a lot of stuff to grow in. This is the basic, simple stuff that Christ died for sinners so that you could live for him. And if anyone would come to Christ, he would make you a new creation. The old creation is marred by sin and rebellion. We are like sheep who have gone astray. But the good news in is if anyone is found in Jesus, you're a new creation. The old man is crucified with Christ on the cross. The past is gone. The handwriting of requirements that was against you is nailed to the cross to be remembered no more. The language there in Colossians means that your list of requirements were against you were blotted out. And it's the same word, te telestai, that Jesus calls out from the cross. It is finished. Also translated, paid in full. Does that sound good to anybody here? Because I got a whole lot of spiritual debt in the Rory Rogers account heaped up from rebellion against God, even though I was raised in a Christian home in a very sterile environment. You wouldn't believe the wickedness in this young man's heart. Handwriting of requirements against me, blotted out by the blood of Jesus, paid in full, te telestai, nailed to the cross. This is for anyone. All things, this applies to all things, would become new. You are a new creation. There are two Greek words that Paul could have used here. One means you are renovated. I'm just going to take an old building here and, you know, okay. But the language that Paul used 
is that you're not renovated. You're made brand new. Brand new start. And we persuade men for this brand new start. We persuade men, verse 18, that all things are of God. It's not talking about God created that mountain in this cloud and this. You know, that's all true and that's all wonderful. That's not what it's talking about here. All things that are of God is this work that's talking about right here. All things becoming new. That's of God. Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Get ready, people. You're going to learn a new word today. And it's going to become familiar. I hope you start using it a lot. Because it's five times in this first section. It's the word reconcile or reconciliation. And it means to make friends again after an argument or disagreement. First of all, he has reconciled us to himself. We've been made friends with God again. As he was the very first peacemaker who brought together two warring, feuding parties. The Rory Rogers man against the God. Guess who was going to lose in that, by the way? He has brought us together. And Romans 5, 6 through 11 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man when one die, yet perhaps for a good man when someone even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God... There's that word reconciled. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been, here it is, reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Reconcile. Reconciliation. While we were enemies of his. And don't you love that? You know, man, for a, a wicked man, I don't know that I'd die for him. For a good man, I don't know that I'd die for him. <laughs> you know, I mean... It's like, oh yeah, I'd die for him. I don't know that I'd really die for him. I mean, that means die. You know, got to really think about that. But then we have God who says, you know what? I died for you while you were a wicked man. And I have pursued you to reconcile our warring parties. Ephesians 2 says, he himself is our peace who has made both one, and has broken down that middle wall of separation. Mr. Gorbachev, burn down that wall. Okay, no, forget it. Jesus has torn down that wall. 
He's not Gorbachev. There's a whole thing. Okay, anyways. Child of the 80s here. I don't even know the whole story. Anyways. I'm calling Jesus Gorbachev? No. But he's the one who broke down that middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the war. That is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, that list of requirements that he ended up blotting out. Look at verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both to God, one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity or the war. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. He is the one who has reconciled us. And now he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. We who've been set free, we who are a part of the, the new wallless relationship, now we go tell people the wall has been tore down. That's a big task and a tall order, isn't it? Well, our very book, 2 Corinthians, tells us that we aren't sufficient for that. But he makes us sufficient as ministers of reconciliation. Verse 19 says, That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Notice that God was in Christ reconciling. Not only is it a wonderful text of the deity of Jesus, but even more so we are seeing that the Father and the Son worked together at the cross. It was a Trinitarian plan. And as you read Psalm 48, or Psalm 40 rather, Jesus took part of this plan and said, you have prepared a body for me. I will go and delight in your will on earth. Jesus, the first reconciler, the first one sent out, reconciles us and now gives us a sending out to go minister that reconciliation. Now, when we were reconciled, number one, our text shows us we are bought, brought back into relationship with God. And number two, our trespasses are not imputed to us. Those are two good things. Reconciled, brought back into relationship with God. But number two, our sins and iniquities and trespasses are not imputed to us. Now, first vocab word of the day, reconcile. Second vocab word of the day, impute. All right? Now, impute is an accounting term or a banking term. And it means to keep a record or a charge of something in your account. Every time you guys do your check register, every time you check your bank balances, all of those things, uh, you are accounting, you are imputing, you are depositing something into your account in one case, and you're reconciling your bank statements in another case. All right? Uh, and so a wonderful thing that happens for us when we're reconciled to God, is that there's a bank transaction that's taking place where all the sin that was in my bank account is taken out. 
He does not impute sin into my account anymore. We would think of that as, oh, I had a whole lot of good sin in my account, but the reality was we were spiritually bankrupt. And I remember those days when I was an 18-year-old and I had my own checkbook and I would just write those bad boys like crazy. And then I go and decide I'm going to marry an accountant. And how old was I? I was uh, 20 years old when we got engaged and my wife saw the overdraft statement come in the mail of my personal bank account. She sits down with me and she holds it up. She says, give me your checkbook. This will never happen again. And you know what? (laughs) It's happened a few times. No, really. No, it hasn't happened at all. But I remember being bankrupt. You know, not only am I bankrupt, then there's like a $28 charge for getting bankrupt. And what am I supposed to pay that with? That's where I'm at spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. Blessed are those who realize they are spiritually bankrupt. Romans says it this way. To him who does not work, but just believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed, and he quotes from Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. There's a whole lot of banking stuff going on in there. We've got words accounted. We've got words impute. But basically, imagine your life as a big bank account, and you've just been heaping up sin, which is nothing but spiritual debt. And the Lord comes, and he takes away that spiritual debt, and he, just doesn't, he doesn't just leave us at a zero. You know, as so many people are like, oh, I paid off my student debt. Oh, whoo, what a weight off. Yeah, well, guess what? He didn't just leave you at a no-debt state, but then it says that he imputed into your account or put into your account righteousness, rightness, obedience, obedience that is apart from your obedience. I hope you're loving this as much as I am. Man, I, Rory Rogers, spiritually bankrupt, in fact, heaping debt upon myself with my sin and rebellion against God, but he has come Not by my works, but by his work on the cross. He has taken out all that bankruptcy and spiritual debt. And then he put into my account riches. I am rich in righteousness. When God looks at me, he sees the son, Jesus Christ. And he sees a Rory who is, you know, who's done nothing but obedience his whole life. And so that's why when I go to the Bema seat judgment, I cling to my high priest. Because he, the Father, will see me through the lens of the cross. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes righteousness. The Lord would look at you through Jesus and say, Te telestai, paid in full. It is finished. And you know what? The Lord is in the business of forgiving debt. He wants to forgive you. As Psalm 32 says, I acknowledged my sin to you 
and my iniquity. I haven't hidden it. I haven't tried to cover it. I said, Lord, you see what I see. I see what you see. You see what I don't even see that's in here. I acknowledge it to you. I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. Or Psalm 86, 5, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who would call upon you. If anyone would be in Christ Jesus, he would be a new creation because Christ Jesus is good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy. Would you come to the God who reconciles today? He wants to take these two warring parties, you against him, and he's pursuing you to reconcile with him today. And as you're reconciled, he will no longer see your sin, but see righteousness as you're found in Jesus. Those were the first two acts that verse, uh, is it verse 19 that tell us God reconciles, God does not impute iniquity. But the third thing we see is that we are given an incredible mission to bring others into relationship with God so that they can have forgiveness of spiritual debt as well. He is committed to us the word of reconciliation. What does that commit mean to you? Someone commits something into your trust. That's that treasure, isn't it? I mean, you're given a treasure to hold on to and to do something with. We have this word of reconciliation. We have the ministry of reconciliation, and now we have the word of reconciliation, where we open up our mouths and tell people. I love, I learned it from Blaine, and then I heard it again this week, so I know it wasn't Blaine who made it up. Sorry, man, you just went down a few notches in my hero book. (laughs) But that we are just beggars who know where the bread is. That is the word of reconciliation. We go around telling people, man, I can see you're starving. I found the source of bread. Come on, it's fresh, it's hot and now. Got a little bit of flour on the top, that cool little powdery look. Let's go eat it. The word of reconciliation, we tell people about Jesus. Charles Hodge says concerning these three points of reconciliation, not being imputed to sins against us and having a word committed to us. He says, the proof that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, in his death, is that he does not impute to men their trespasses and that he has established the ministry of reconciliation. The forgiveness of sin and the institution of the ministry are clear evidence that God is propitious. Not to impute sin is to forgive it. Verse 19 gives us evidence that God is in the business of reconciling men, forgiving men, and using men by what he's done. Verse 20, now then, We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. All of these things, I mean, almost every verse has a connecting word starting it out. 
And so as you see this now then, we're just remembering everything we've been learning about an eternal perspective, a heavenly mindset, a heavenly habitation. And in heaven, we are going to give an account before the Lord. And, and then eventually our own friends and family who aren't saved, they're going to give an account for the Lord. And, and it could end in hell for them. And man, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And the love of Christ compels us to do that because he died for us that we could live for him. That moves us towards this ministry. And not only, man, he's been about this reconciling us together and forgiving us our sins and not giving us righteousness, not imputing sin, all of these things. Whew, that is good stuff. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ with a ministry of reconciliation and a word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors in such a way it's as if Christ were pleading through us to men and women. We are ambassadors. We are representatives from one kingdom to another. We, we come from the kingdom of heaven and we say, Lord, would you, you know, would you come and reason with this man and let's go reason with this man to be reconciled to God. An ambassador pleads with another nation and, and gives terms of peace. They make sure to tell the other country the things that would make for peace, the things which please their king and the things that would end these, the warfare that's been going on. That we would open up our mouths as an ambassador. Paul would say in Ephesians 6, verse 20, I'm an ambassador in chains, so pray for me that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Boldly as I ought to speak. Hodge says, an ambassador is at once a messenger and a representative. He does not speak in his own name. He does not act in his own authority. What he communicates is not his own opinions or his own demands, but simply what he has been told or commissioned to say. His message derives no part of its importance or trustworthiness from him. At the same time, he is more than a mere messenger. He represents his sovereign. He speaks with authority as accredited to act in the name of his master. And haven't we been given that authority? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Our ambassador has authority and we now go confident in his authority. Any neglect, contempt, or injury done to him in his official character is not a personal offense, but an offense to the sovereign or state by whom he's commissioned. All this is true of ministers. By the way, you are ministers if you're a Christian. They are messengers. They communicate what they have received, not their own speculations or doctrines. What they announce derives its importance not from them, but from him who sent them. Nevertheless, as they speak in Christ's name and by his authority, as he has ordained the ministry and calls men by his spirit into this sacred office, the rejection of their message is the rejection of Christ. And any injury done unto them as ministers is done to him. So when we go out as ambassadors and we speak not our own opinions, not our own doctrines, we speak what we have been given in the holy word of God, 
We are commissioned by the authoritative Jesus Christ. And when we get the looks and when we get the sneers and when people shoot out the lips and, you know, all that stuff at us or, and eventually put us into prison and kill us, it's nothing personal. <laughs> They're rejecting Christ. That is why when Saul of Tarsus was persecuting Christians, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so we are ambassadors of the sovereign God. And we plead as if it was God making his appeal th through us, earnestly inviting people and calling people to be reconciled. We implore people in fact, I implore you today, be reconciled to God. On behalf of God, I plead for you today to be reconciled to God, that your sins wouldn't be charged against you, that you would receive today the righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus, and that you would join us in this mission, an exciting mission to reconcile men to God and, and rather to point people to Jesus who reconciles men to himself. Pleading with people. When was the last time you pleaded with somebody? Pled with somebody? When was the last time you pled with somebody? When was the last time you with tears and urgency? And maybe you haven't. Maybe you never have. Maybe it's been a long time. And maybe today, just being reminded of eternity and getting past men and women their outward appearance so that you would see an eternity there that God found right to send his son as a sacrifice for that person? When was the last time you've pled? When was the last time you've tried to persuade a man or a woman? One of my favorite preachers, his name is Alistair Bagg. Him and Sinclair Ferguson wrote in a book, Name Above All Names. They said, we have a long-standing friend who was once driving in the north of Scotland with our fellow countryman, the late professor John Murray of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. The professor Murray decided to turn the journey into a quiz. He asked the question, what is the difference between a lecture and preaching? So as you come in here today, are you getting a nice lecture? Oh, they're already lecturing us again. Or is there preaching and heralding that's taking place? Our friend tried his best to come up with a good answer. But Professor Murray was not satisfied. Well, Professor Murray, our friend finally eventually conceded. What is the answer? What is the difference between a lecture and preaching? This is what it is, said John Murray. Preaching is a personal, passionate plea. A personal, passionate plea. Our friend again replied, but what is the personal, passionate plea? Quick as a flash, Professor Murray responded in Paul's words, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When was the last time? There's been a personal, passionate plea imploring somebody, be reconciled to God. I believe that, that today God has brought 
this group here for this word. This, oh, this, this, oh, couldn't wait to get here, you guys. God wants to turn us into ambassadors. In fact, he already has. We just don't even know it. Or we've been neglecting it. We don't care. He cares. He cares. He's reconciled us. He's forgiven us. He's given us righteousness. Right standingness before God. And he's given us a mission. Better than any presidential call into the Oval Office. Rory, I can tell you're really good at this one thing. And there's nobody else that can do it but you. Oh, do I get a special vest and like a zipline thing? Oh, no. <laughs> we come into the throne room of God and he says, my children, I've bought you with a price and I've saved you for good works. I've got a task for you. How can these two parties reconcile as we plead with people? How can they be reconciled to God? Verse 19 and verse 21 have the answer. Verse 19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. The accounting, the bookkeeping, the record taker, record taking, the imputing, it all comes from verse 21. Verse 21, which has been called the great exchange. The just for the unjust. Verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. God crushed his own son and did not spare him so that we could be reconciled. Times like Easter and Good Friday, we tend to sentimentalize it, but we ought not forget the truth, just, legal, that was, legal thing that was taking place where Christ was offering up himself as a sacrifice for sins and God's wrath burned hot against our sin. And God poured out his hot displeasure against everything we have done upon the sinless Savior. God crushed his son. And Jesus knew something about what that was going to be. Because from Galilee to Jerusalem... Jesus set his face like flint saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to die. But don't worry, I'm going to rise again from the dead on the third day. And the closer he got to Jerusalem until it was finally the night of, he's in a garden weeping with such anxiety that he is sweating blood. The capillaries in his brow are bursting because he realizes he will be separated from the father for the first time since before there was ever anything ever, ever, because he's eternal. And this legal hearing at Mount Calvary, justice was served. Righteousness and mercy at the cross. That is why it says that he is the just and justifier of all who would call on him. He remains just while pardoning sinners. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It is why we sing songs like amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? 
We are justified just as if we never sinned because of what he's done. Not because of what's happening in us today or what we've done, what's happening from us, but what's happened from him. As we sing the song before the throne of God written by Charity Bancroft in 1841, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. As Isaiah 53 says, all of we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's throw up that image just real quick to just finalize the doctrine of imputation. Our guilty sins go upon him at the cross and all of his rightness or righteousness come upon us. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Let's put our things aside this morning. Have the worship team come back up. And we're going to move to communion Remembering the sacrificial substitution atonement of Jesus. That God was in Christ. And what a great Christmas message, although you didn't think of it as Christmas Eve, but God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. That has been the plan since before the Garden of Eden. Out of the seed of Eve, the serpent's head will be crushed. That he would come and be a substitute for sinners. And I, for one, need that. As we come to the communion table today, we remember the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus that were sacrificed in our place to wash away our sins. We remember the imputation, the imputing of his righteousness into our account and our sinfulness into his account. Our condemnation went upon him that his justification could be put upon us.